never pressed play yesterday. I'm still stuck on that vulture piece by Jordan Cruciola right now. I never came back to paragraph one. Got on a bit of a rant about toxic masculinity. Back to paragraph one. There's a lot going on in the new movie Mandy. Lie. From writer and director Panos Cosmatos. I would debate the legitimacy of either of those titles, but that part is technically accurate. The most superficial description of this story would be that it's a rock opera about revenge. It's not a rock opera. Now, if you got King Crimson to do songs over and over, sure, but Johan Johansson doing occasional interesting guitar work doesn't make it a rock opera. Your stupid color timing, which isn't even color timing, by the way. Some of it was apparently tinted in frame while filming, which is so much worse. That means they planned it. We'll get to that. Minute 50, remember Curtis's theory that he made a normal film and then altered it because it wasn't that good. That apparently is not at all the case. Anyway, back to Cruciella. It's a rock opera about revenge. Okay. With a simmering metal soundtrack. It ain't simmering, it's mostly boring. And absolutely crazy fight scenes. I guess I can give you that. Involving crossbows. Hand-forged battle axes. I don't know why he says hand-forged. Just like self-forged or something else. Because hand-forged is weird. How else do you forge battle axes? And insane fantasy drugs. Fine. Insane fantasy drugs. Sure. Because they're stupid fantasy drugs. Insane. Not the best description. Whatever. The next sentence is what gets me. The revenge is especially sweet. Or boring. I'm sorry. Let's get the sentence. The revenge is especially sweet because it's built on a tender love story between a timber worker named Red, Nicholas Cage, and his shop clerk girlfriend, Mandy, Andrea Riseborough. I'll give you the revenge. I guess I suggested in the last bit that revenge, cinematic revenge, is not a good thing. But we like it. It's a fantasy. It's this toxic fantasy about how we would destroy the world for something we care about. It's especially sweet. I don't think so, but that comes down to the next part. Because it's built on a tender love story. There's no tender love story in this film. There is a couple who may or may not be married, may or may not be even having a sexual, romantic, loving relationship. We don't know. We don't see them do anything. She gets up on her chair and kisses him when he comes home. That's it. She could be his daughter in that scene. I still don't know why she gets up on the chair. She's not that short. Anyway, tender love story between a timber worker, it's a weird way to say lumberjack, but whatever, named Red. No, his name isn't Red. He has no name. A film character doesn't have a name until someone says it. I wrote a screenplay where I purposely avoid saying the main character's names, and it was on purpose. There was a reason to it. It was about identity, and it was about who they are. It was about them figuring out who they've become in the face of their marriage falling apart, their, uh, I forget how old she was, but their young daughter being murdered, which led to their marriage falling apart, which is leading to them. It's a whole thing. It involves revenge, actually. But it's a story about who these people are. And so, every minor character in the screenplay gets a name. Gets their name mentioned. Gets their name seen on a name tag, like a guy at a gas station is wearing a name tag with his name on it. Everyone gets a name. They're all specific, except for this married couple. We don't know their names because it was the way the story played with itself. It puts you into the... Not into the fantasy, because it's not a happy story. Similar to this. But when your title is Mandy, and that is supposedly the name of the other character, clearly you think names matter. 
When you put a character's name as the title of your piece, that's a certain type of fiction. I forget what they call it. I remember reading a piece back in back in high school, or it was a piece about Moby Dick and about why certain authors take names of things in their story, names of characters like the White Whale or Huckleberry Finn. You know, it could have been Adventures on the River. You know, you name Huckleberry Finn because you're going for a certain tone. And you name it Mandy because you're going for a certain tone, you're going for a certain focus. You want us to know up front that we should be paying attention to this person. The problem is she's not worth paying attention to. She's not interesting. She doesn't do anything exciting. She may or may not have a dream about finding a dead baby deer. She tells a stupid, boring story that takes her like three minutes of screen time in bad lighting, in boring, monotone monologue about how she didn't kill a bird once when her father told her to. It's the kind of thing you show a flashback to was probably my favorite movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, has a scene, and this is because of the setup of the film, this is the adult character of Joel embodying his child self when he has a bird that he's going to hit with a hammer, and how bad he felt after doing it, and how he, he did it because it's childish, stupid curiosity, and then he felt bad after he did it because in that moment was this like loss of innocence where he realizes, no, he just hurt this living thing, and that's not good. And he's embodying it as the adult self because of the setup of the film, going back into his own memories. And it's a tragic little thing. This could have been a flashback. You have animated segments in this film. You have dream sequences, I think. You could have had this fucking moment. You could have showed us this tragic thing with her and her father. You could have set it up as a whole plot about her and her father and how, why she's with Red, air quotes, Red. I don't know their ages. I should check. Since I'm actually doing research now that we're at minute 100, how old is Andrea Riseborough? How old is Nicolas Cage? Let's see. Nicolas Cage, born in 1964. Andrea Riseborough, born in 1981. So, yeah, she is 17 years younger than him. You could have used this as a setup for an actual plotline, actual story development, actual character development. In fact, she's with Red because he's an older man. And then she sort of gets enamored with this charismatic cult leader who comes into the, I'm going to say into town, but there's no town. But when Jeremiah shows up, she sort of gets attached to him slightly because he's this older man who's charismatic and interesting and reminds her of her father. And then you can make her father a character, and you give us an actual flashback, maybe a few flashbacks, and it becomes a whole thing about her character, about her, about our interpretation of her, our interpretation of the film, our interpretation of the story. And you make it matter. And then it actually means something. They don't just drug Mandy and demand she be with Jeremiah, and she laughs. No. She gets attached to him, he gets attached to her, and then he goes too far and she rejects him. Because then it buys more into this alleged message you have, according to this vulture piece about that, like going after fragile masculinity, toxic masculinity, and Jeremiah being this embodiment of that. Give him the in before you pull him back. His first scene where he actually does anything, he's already demanding that swine go get her. Use the horn of Abraxas and get her. You're not painting your villain as ordinary. You're not painting him as someone charming. You're painting him as a horrible person who does horrible things immediately. The revenge is especially sweet because it's built on a tender love story. That would be okay. If you're going to waste an hour on a tender love story, it needs some nuance to it. It needs some actual depth. It needs us to get to know these characters. How do we spend an hour with these characters? Well, we don't. We don't spend an hour with these characters, do we? We spend, what is it, a half hour? And then we switch focus to the cult. 
and we're just stuck with it. We just have to live with it. See, you say this is about fragile masculinity and Jeremiah is the bad guy, but then you focus so much on Jeremiah that that's not the impression I get. The impression I get of what you wrote, whether you meant to or not, is that you are enamored with Jeremiah. You see him as something almost ideal. Fragile, broken, damaged, fucked in the head, but still strangely charismatic and ideal. Idealized. We joked in minute 50 about how you spent all day filming the scene with him nude because you, like, you enjoyed seeing him that way. But in a way, that is essentially what that scene is. That scene at the center of this film is about us seeing this guy. He's not fragile in that moment. Till she laughs, he's not vulnerable. He doesn't take off his robe to be vulnerable. His nakedness is not vulnerability. His nakedness is an attack on her. His nakedness is what you're talking about in this article. Is this toxic masculinity, this attack on her, it's not vulnerability. Vulnerable nakedness would be more interesting. Like if we'd actually seen her when she came up out of the water by the campfire. You can use that to make a character more interesting, to make a character more worth our attention. See, and I say this knowing that there are so many people who for some reason love this movie, people who think it is one of the greatest movies ever, best horror film in years. Sometimes the best movie I've seen in years, which is insane. Like, they need to get out more. I don't have time for this today. That's not even my desk. 